0: Gerlock, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Why Cover Crop Acreage is Growing and Important Rule Changes that May Reduce the Risk, is brought to you by Cover Crop Strategies and the sponsors of our digital content. Gandhi, INJ Manufacturing, Montag Manufacturing, Walnut Creek Seeds, and Underforth Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. As you know, the Census of Agriculture's 2017 data is out, and the acreage seeded to cover crops in the U.S. increased nearly 50% in the past five years. In a Q&A interview with senior editor John Daberstein, Rob Myers, Regional Director of Extension Programs for Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, also known as SARE, will talk about why this increased interest is significant to agriculture in both semi-arid regions and areas where precipitation is plentiful. Myers will also outline some important changes to crop insurance regulations ushered in with the new Farm Bill and share his projections on where the U.S. could land with total cover crop acres by 2029. Please note that you can follow along with this podcast discussion and see important cover crop data by downloading Rob's preliminary report located at the landing page for this podcast. And with that, let's turn it over to John and Rob.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm here with Rob Myers, Regional Director of Extension Programs for Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, also known in the industry as SARE. Rob's here to talk about the new Census of Agriculture data from 2017 that came out earlier this month that included figures for cover crop acres both nationally and in all 50 states and the rate of growth for each state. Rob, maybe you could just start off by telling us what your role is at SEER and what you do.
2: Sure. So I work with... universities and farmers and nonprofit organizations across the Midwest on different sustainable ag programs. I spend probably about half my time working on uh, cover crop and soil health uh, programs and topics, and uh, I'm an agronomist myself, so that's something of great interest to me, and uh, just try to help uh, people not only with some grants that we give out, but also uh, education and outreach programs, including uh, conferences and other programs we put on.
1: The first question I have is what you're feeling about the overall increase in cover crop acres in the U.S. Did those numbers beat your expectations, and what has the reaction been in the industry?
2: Yeah, well, I thought the number of 15.4 million acres in 2017 for the U.S. as a whole was pretty close to where I expected. I thought it'd probably be in the 16 to 17 million acre range, and I did learn after the fact that... uh, That 15.4 million acres probably doesn't quite capture everything uh, for one reason. uh, It looks like the way they asked the question about grazing uh, might have led some farmers to count cover crops they graze in a different category but regardless it represents a really strong growth rate of over 50 about 50% over the 5 year period of 2012 to 2017 so i think you know this is something that uh, for people who don't track what's happening with cover crops very closely is going to make them sit up and pay more attention to the fact that this is getting such a strong response from
1: farmers across the country what do you feel is behind the, the increase in acres? What do you, you think is driving this?
2: Well, I think it's a variety of things. One thing I noted is that a lot of the growth happened from farmers who are already using cover crops. So while we increased total acreage by fifteen 50%, uh, the number of new farmers growing cover crops grew quite a bit, um, but it wasn't as fast as the total growth in acreage. So so that tells me the growth is coming both from new farmers starting to adopt cover crops, but also existing farmers expanding their their cover crop acreage. So that's something we would seen also from the SARA, CTIC, National Cover Crop Surveys I coordinated. And I think we'll continue to see growth in that regard. Although we have farmers that are 100% cover cropped, you know, the vast majority that are using cover crops are not yet uh, doing cover crops on all their acres for one reason or another. Maybe they're prioritizing putting in something like rye before soybeans that works pretty well, but not as much before corn. Or maybe they just don't have quite time to get over all their acres in the fall. Or, or you know they may have other aspects of their cropping system that, that leads them to not yet use them on all acres. But But many farmers tell me they are Continuing to ratchet up their acreage of cover crops, and uh, so I think that's a trend we'll we'll continue to see.
1: In the semi-arid regions of the country, there's been concern about cover crops using too much soil moisture ahead of their cash crop. You know, for instance, winter wheat. In Nebraska, the Dakotas, Kansas, Oklahoma, they were all in the top 20 for acreage increase.
2: This is a subject I think we probably should talk about for a couple of minutes because it's quite interesting. You know one thing I look at is i've been in a number of meetings with people from the risk management agency or involved in crop insurance and and just like other parts of ag, you get people saying, well, it's okay for farmers in Maryland or Ohio to use cover crops, but you know it just doesn't work in the drier areas. Well, I think this census blows that uh, opinion to shreds, so I want to just very quickly, read off some numbers from some of our drier states. Let's let's just look at uh, places like Oklahoma and Kansas that you know you would consider pretty pretty dry. Oklahoma had over 2,200 farm operations using cover crops. Moving north, Kansas had over 3,200. Moving north again, Nebraska had over 4,400. Even South Dakota and North Dakota, which you know are very dry over most of the state, South Dakota had over 1,800, North Dakota had over 2,200. So over 4,000 farm operations in the Dakotas alone. Texas had over 7,300, another extremely dry state. So you put those states together from North Dakota down to Texas in a straight line, over 21,000 farm operations had cover crops in those very dry Great Plains and High Plains states. Now somebody may say, Well, yeah, but the eastern part of those states gets more rain. Well let's let's go further west. Let's look at Colorado. Colorado had over seventeen hundred farm operations with cover crops. Montana had over 1,100. Idaho had over 1,300. Even New Mexico had over 1,100 farm operations with cover crops. So I, when I was typing up all those individual states, I just was like shaking my head that I couldn't believe how many farms were using cover crops in those western states. I'd been hearing it from individual farmers in those states. So so the numbers are there, and then I think getting at your underlying question, what's driving that? We're just finding more and more farmers are saying, you know, hey, it's not working for me to do a wheat fallow system where every I can only get a cash crop every other year, and then I've got to go out and spray chemicals or till in the off year that's fallow, uh, that's expensive, and you know I'm I'm degrading my soil when I'm doing that. The soil's blowing away if I'm tilling it to control the weeds. So they're finding that there are uh, different cover crops, maybe it's a legume like Austrian winter peas that they can use to help hold the soil in place and suppress weeds while also gradually improving their soil in a way that that increases soil moisture. So I heard a a farmer from eastern Oregon uh, talking the other day, and he talked about how when he gets a rain they've done some soil moisture monitoring that in the cover crop versus straight fallow where nothing is being grown that they get more moisture down two feet deep in the soil than in just the straight fallow after a good rainfall event and of course the reason that's happening is that the cover crops are helping create macropores in the soil that help that rain get into the soil. So it's not about the fact that the cover crop transpires a little moisture. It's about what does that cover crop do to the soil system in terms of capturing and keeping every drop of water available. And that's been surprising to people. If I could just say one more word about that, when we first had survey data from the 2012 drought, I remember getting an indignant email from a uh, crop physiologist who worked with soybeans uh, at a land-grant university. This was a guy about ready to retire, but he he sent out a long email to a bunch of people saying, well, there's no way that cover crops could help in dry conditions, (laughs) because he was looking at it as a physiologist, so, hey, these things are going to transpire moisture but what we've learned is you know it's not just the macropores but the residue is helping reduce evaporation um, but some there's some surprising things go on the we get more earthworms the earthworms are changing the water infiltration uh, the organic matter as it changes slowly is improving moisture holding capacity but i think one of the quick things that happens is we get mycorrhiza that extend effectively the the amount of water and nutrients that those roots can access. And in a dry year, our our cash crop roots don't grow very far, but if they've got mycorrhizal fungi helping them access more water and nutrients, then they do better. So there's a lot of things going on, uh, even cash crops rooting deeper after a a cover crop has been put in that help in those dry conditions. So people are recognizing that, and that's, that's leading to more use in those more arid areas.
1: Yeah, and that seems to confirm what I've found in interviews with with no-tillers out in Oklahoma, Colorado, Texas. Uh, What they tend to find when they use cover crops in their farms differs from what the mantra is from people about moisture use. They talk about retaining more moisture, reducing the evapotranspiration, which is really key. Uh, Just a month ago, I was out visiting some no-tillers in western Oklahoma, and they've been using cereal rye for decades on their farm, putting it into cotton, and it's really made a difference in the wind erosion and the water erosion and organic matter, and uh, so it sounds like some of these myths about cover crops in the western U.S. are starting to be contradicted, and farmers are, are adopting them in greater number, so that's certainly good to see. One of the things you analyzed, Rob, when looking at this data is the percentage of cropping acres for corn, soybeans, and cotton that are seeded to cover crops in various states. And it seems to maybe show a different picture as far as where we need to go with adoption. What was your reason for doing this analysis and what do you think it says?
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I I made some maps based on the census data because for any of us it's easier to visually see what's going on than to look at a table of numbers for 50 states. And when you make a map of which states have the most acreage, uh, it's maybe not surprisingly primarily in the Midwest. It's states like Iowa and Missouri and Illinois, uh, Indiana, Nebraska, Ohio, Uh, Texas is a big one outside the Midwest. Uh, and not as much in the other parts of the country. But then when you f- you flip it and you say, well, what percentage of the actual cropland is in cover crops? Then it skews much more to the eastern part of the Corn Belt. And, you know, as a quick way of looking at that, and it's not a perfect way of looking at it, I mapped uh, the number of cover crop acres versus the number of corn, soybean, and cotton acres in each state. Now, wheat, of course, would be the other big one you could look at. But obviously, with winter wheat, if you've got winter wheat, you're not likely to be growing a winter cover crop. You may grow a summer cover crop cocktail after that winter wheat is harvested. Or if you have spring wheat, you may do a cover crop after it or even before it. But but I took out wheat just to kind of simplify the equation. And as I said, when you look at that, you see much more in the uh, eastern part. So getting into the numbers specifically, in the Midwest, uh, with the slight exception of Uh, Wisconsin, we had less than 10% cover crop acres when you look at the equivalent corn, soybean, and cotton acres in any of those Midwestern states. But then as you go to the eastern states and some other states, you find that there are quite a few. Actually, 10 of our 50 U.S. states have over 20% equivalent cropland compared to corn, soybean, and and cotton in cover crops. And there are actually six states with 35% or more of their corn, soybean, or cotton land in cover crops. Now, I want to reemphasize that there would be some acres in each of those states that is not corn, soybeans, or cotton that has cover crops. There'd be some vegetables, there'd be some small grains, there there might be sorghum or some other crop, but I think that's not a bad way to take a quick look at it, and I think it tells me two things. One is that you know it is possible that we'll get in the Midwest, or really any state, a much higher level of adoption because we've got... 10 states already that are at more than 20%, and like I said, 6 that are at 35% or more. So I, I never buy the argument, well, we're just, yeah, cover crops are great, but it's never going to be more than 5 or 10% of the acres. I, this, that's another thing the census shows us, is a lot of these states that have been low in the Midwest, they're the ones that were more than doubling their acreage. I mean, Iowa uh, almost tripled. Uh, its uh, cover crop acreage went from 379 thousand to 973 thousand, 156 percent increase. One of the surprises to me was Illinois. I grew up on a farm in central Illinois, and there still are not too many cover crops around. Uh, our farm has is entirely cover crop. The tenant that farms it, but um, there aren't too many farms right around there that are using cover crops, and yet Illinois went from let's see, from 318,000 to 708,000, so more than doubled its cover cover crop acreage. So I think what's happening, uh, we'll start to look at some county-level data when we get our hands on that, but I suspect it's in some of the more rolling parts of the state uh, where we're seeing those bigger uh, increases in growth. But it also depends on what's the education program in the area, you know, are there... Uh, people in a particular part of the state, including the farmers themselves, that are helping lead the way and let other people know about the benefits of cover crops.
1: Mm-hmm. You've been involved for a number of years with the annual survey you do of, of cover crop users. Did you see anything in the census data that contradicted what you've seen in in your own surveys?
2: We had been tracking a little bit higher growth rate, but I think that reflects the fact that we're, we've been surveying people who are already using cover crops for the most part. And, and so, again, those are the people that are accelerating their use of cover crops even faster than the number of new farmers growing them. But it is pretty remarkable how many uh, farmers there are in total. Uh, That was one thing I was really curious to see because I did not have a good handle on that. So I mentioned some individual state numbers for the West, but looking nationally, uh, the census said we had 153,000 farm operations with cover crops. And that's more than I would have expected. Now, of course, an individual farm may uh, have more than one farm operation as far as is concerned. But I think that gives us a rough idea that, you know, certainly there's probably more than 100,000 farmers using cover crops. And uh, so that, that was pretty remarkable to see and something we really didn't have a handle on just from our survey.
1: Right. Was there anything in the data that confirmed some of your observations from your own surveys, the things that you thought were true that, you know, turned out to be true?
2: Well, as I, I said, the, the growth has been uh, accelerating, and uh, I think that it's not, again, I just find it interesting that almost any state you go to, the, the naysayers about cover crops or no-till will say, well, it doesn't work here. It works over in that other state, but it doesn't work in, in my state. I'll give you another example. A couple years ago, I was in a meeting with a, a corn agronomist from one of the upper Midwest States And he said to me, well, you know, I understand down in Missouri, which is where I'm currently at, that you guys have cover crops. But, you know, I I just don't see in Wisconsin. I don't think we have many. And I showed him that uh, his state was one of the top uh, states in using cover crops as far as uh, that point in time with the Midwest. And so... uh, there's just this assumption that they grow better somewhere else than they do in my own state and it is hard when you drive through a state you may not know whether you're seeing winter wheat or a cover crop uh, or from a distance it may even be hard to tell if it's you know a pasture or something else out there so uh, i think people are surprised when they look at the census data just how how much cover crops are out there now yes it's still a relatively low percent of acreage in some states but These numbers are, you know, they're growing. 15 million acres is nothing to sneeze at in terms of its impact on our soil and water and even from an industry standpoint.
1: Talked about the uh, census question on cover crops and that it is pretty general, doesn't really define what a cover crop is. Tell, Tell me what your thoughts are on that and what you think the questions should say or maybe how they should approach it differently if you want to
2: comment on that (laughs) yeah well it's you know they they ask it in a very simple way and i don't think it's terrible the way they do it they just simply say how many acres of cover crops did you plant in this case in 2017 and and then the first time they ever asked that question to my knowledge is 2012 so we don't have earlier data That, that would have been nice if we'd known how many acres there were in earlier years but uh, so so they had the same question in 2012 and 17. How many acres did you plant in that census year, or 2017 in this case? So they don't tell you what is considered a cover crop, and perhaps more importantly, they don't tell you how to handle special things, like if you grazed or hayed the cover crop, do you count that as a forage or not? So it looked to me like uh, from the this last census that some farmers might have – might have ended up putting cover crops that were grazed into another category because there was a question about if you had a crop that was grazed, you know, count it here. Um, So it it probably would be nice if they either had a second question right after the question about cover crops, how many additional acres of cover crops did you graze, or they just made clear that you could include grazed cover crops in with that. Because we don't really have a good idea nationally what percent of cover crop acres are grazed, I'm quite confident that it's a significant percentage in some states, but whether it's 10% or 15%, you know, I don't really, really know, but there certainly could have been another couple, maybe even 3 million acres of cover crops that have been grazed that (laughs) ended up getting counted somewhere else. So it's hard to know based on the way the question was asked.
1: Yeah. And and I can say from an editor that I've seen an increased number of questions coming from readers and and in the general farming public as well about grazing cover crops. And we had a lot of interest at our national no-tillage conference on grazing cover crops. We had the classroom, people were standing in the hallways and our round table discussion had way more people than seats. So I, I, I would have to agree with you that there's a lot of interest in grazing cover crops in terms of diversifying income on the farm. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if they revise that question for the next census.
0: If this discussion has you thinking about getting cover crops seeded as part of your conservation efforts, check out the opportunities to come at the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference to be held January 7th through 10th, 2020 at the newly redeveloped Union Station Hotel in St. Louis. Last year's conference covered more than 27 different topics related to successful no-till systems, and our upcoming event will be sure to present even better information to help your farm operations be more profitable. For more information, go to www.notillconference.com. Now let's get back to Rob Myers and John Daubberstein as they discuss three important changes made recently in the new Farm Bill that may help remove obstacles to cover crop adoption including termination timing, fallow acres, and what constitutes good farming practices.
1: So where do you think we're heading with cover crop incentives? I had Barry Fisher tell me one from the NRCS tell me one time that for every acre of subsidized cover crops that is planted, that five more acres of cover crops are planted by those who are just wanting to experiment. Um, what are you seeing as far as where we're heading with cover crop incentives and are you seeing more states offer them?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, well, the biggest trend with incentives that I am quite confident is happening is the NRCS, particularly through EQIP, but also through their um, conservation stewardship program, is offering more dollars for cover crop incentive payments and. In, Just about every state in the US. And of course, it varies from state to state how much they prioritize. The state and RCS offices have some latitude in which of the many, many different uh, conservation practices gets priority to some extent in that state, uh, and that's influenced by volunteer members on their state technical committees. So I serve on the one in Missouri, and I know there's discussion about that. But just to give you an example, since I'm in Missouri, those are the numbers I'm most familiar with. Um, Probably if you went back about five years ago, I would guess we were spending less than a million dollars a year in um, cost share. Well, I know we were on cost share and uh, cover crops. And this past year, Uh, we had between state and federal funds over $20 million available in Missouri. Now, Missouri has something uh, unique that a lot of states don't have, which is a tax-funded, sales tax-funded soil and water program. That generates about $40 million a year for a variety of uh, soil and water practices. And, And that program as well, that state program, has really ratcheted up its cover crop incentives. So that's having an impact. You know, Missouri was one of the states that more than doubled its cover crop acreage. So I think uh, Barry Fisher was right. It is a minority of the total cover crop acres. Um, We don't have a real hard number when you put state and federal dollars together, what percentage or cost shared. Uh, My best guess would be, like Barry said, it's probably in that 20, maybe not more than 25% range. There are a lot of farmers who will get an incentive payment to get started with cover crops and then after they get comfortable with them, we'll, we'll do it on their own because they find it does really start to pay after a couple of years. So they they have a role and the numbers seem to be increasing uh, in terms of the federal incentive payment rates. As far as the number of states that are offering them, I'm sorry, I don't have a real good handle on that. There are, there are certainly several that are doing it, but I don't know the total number in the U.S.
1: Do you feel like there's a connection, though, between the states where there are incentives in adoption,
2: I do think there is a strong relationship. I mean, many people who kind of follow what happens with cover crops have pointed to the example of Maryland. Uh, Maryland is the state that has the highest percentage of its cropland in cover crops. They've they've generally been in the 40 to 50 percent range of their cropland that has had cover crops on it which is pretty remarkable and and for midwesterners they may say well that's maryland but you know i I lived in maryland for a few years when i worked for the u.s department of ag out there and uh you're out on the eastern shore of maryland you could be standing in central illinois where I grew up. I mean, it's flat and nothing but corn and soybeans as far as you can see in any direction so but they've been able to do it for two reasons they've had 25 years of education about the value of cover crops, and that's had a huge impact. And then they've also had state incentive funds. Uh, At one time, they were pretty high. I I haven't tracked it real closely, but I think for a while they were offering some time. They kind of graduated depending on what you're growing, so you get more if you're growing a mix of cover crops. You get more if you're growing... Legumes, you get more for winter cover crops than winter kill cover crops, and so on. But their top rates for a while were you know eighty, ninety dollars. I looked at them more recently, and you know they're they're not too far out of line with some of the states for NRCS at this point in time. Uh, But they also, I've had people say, well, Maryland requires cover crops. That's not true. They require a nutrient management plan, and to meet the goals of your nutrient management plan, one of the best ways to do that is no-till and cover crops. So you do see farmers kind of reflecting that nutrient management plan. But you asked about states more broadly, so let me come back to Missouri. Uh, Like I said, the state program in Missouri, I think last year they spent something like 6 or $7 million out of just the state funds, and that certainly had an impact on cover crop acreage. You could look at Iowa. They've had some innovative things at the state level there. Most recently, starting two years ago, they've offered farmers a $5 discount on their crop insurance premium if they sign up for cover crops. And it's been a limited program. They've they've had a million dollars a year to put into that, so only 200000 acres a year, but still uh, they quickly have, you know, had every acre possible signed up for that both the years they've offered that. So I think those types of creative approaches in states are going to be helpful as we go forward and getting more producers involved with cover crops.
1: Rob, what have you learned about the farm bill and opportunities for increasing cover crop seeding? Is there anything coming down the pike that will help increase adoption?
2: There were two main things that happened in the Farm Bill that will be important for cover crops going forward. First, they did reauthorize both EQIP and the Conservation Stewardship Program for NRCS as funding programs and provided um, fairly decent levels of support for those programs going forward. There were some cuts, but that will continue to play a major role. The big change, though, was in the crop insurance area. and uh, So there were three changes related to cover crops and crop insurance. I'll mention the two smaller ones first, and then we'll end up with the the more important change. So one of the changes was they clarified when cover crop termination is considered to occur, because that was not totally clear in previous guidance from USDA. From this point on, uh, once the agency gets these rules implemented out of the Farm Bill, the termination will be considered the date that the termination practice is applied. That seems common sense in other words, when you spray the cover crop is when it would be considered the termination date. but in the past they were there was some thinking, well, maybe it's not fully terminated until the cover crop is totally dead, which could be ten days if you sprayed glyphosate on it or uh, some other product so so that was a small but notable change. For farmers who have fallow acres, uh, there was a change to uh, provide a better insurance situation for farmers using cover crops. You could use cover crops in fallow previously, but now once they get these rules implemented from the Farm Bill, uh, those farmers will not pay a penalty for using cover crops. Before, they, if they had an insurance claim, they would get a reduced payout versus where they had no cover crops in a fallow situation. So it kind of just levels the playing field for cover crops for farmers in a fallow area. Now the the big change that will affect uh, more people is the change uh, around how cover crops are viewed for termination in terms of crop insurance eligibility. So all farmers across the U.S. uh, have If they can use cover crops and remain eligible for crop insurance, but, and this is a huge but, it had depended upon when you terminated your cover crop. So if you were in the eastern part of the U.S., it was pretty good. You could terminate that cover crop up to a few days after planting your corn or soybeans or other cash crop. However, if you were in like the western two-thirds of the country, kind of starting in western Iowa, Um, Nebraska's Great Plains going west then you had to terminate earlier and that's been a problem for a lot of farmers who wanted to to do practices like planting green Uh, I know a farmer in Oklahoma Jimmy Emmons who on fields where he, and he's in western Oklahoma where he plants his say soybeans into a green cover crop, he cannot take crop insurance on those acres. And so uh, that's unfortunate uh, for farmers in those areas or has been uh, because, you know, that may affect their ability to get an operating loan for the bank if the bank requires crop insurance on that field. So fortunately, the Farm Bill changes this. Um, Going forward, farmers' eligibility for crop insurance will not be affected by when they terminate their cover crop because that termination will fall under what's called good farming practices, which is the way nearly all of our agronomic management is evaluated for crop insurance terms. In other words, you have to apply your nitrogen and your herbicides and other pesticides according to what would be considered good farming practices or kind of typical agronomic approaches in your area if you have an insurance claim to to get the payment. If you did something really out of line with what everybody else in your area does, that could affect your ability to get a claim, and that would remain true of cover crops. But as long as you're using something that an uh, uh, extension agent or other expert in your area is willing to say, should you have a claim that is appropriate, then you'll, you'll remain eligible for crop insurance. So the risk management agency has not yet uh, formally implemented that rule that's in the farm bill. Um, I'm hoping before too much time goes past, they will have that on the books. Uh, but uh, that's something that will be coming down the pike here later this year.
1: Well, oh, great. Well, that, that sounds like there's some positive developments there. And I know for a certain group of people, crop insurance has has been a little bit of a stumbling block. So hopefully we've we've made some progress there. Uh, looking at the future, you were just in your preliminary report that you released this month. You were talking about some projections for cover crop acreage increasing out for the next 10 years or so. Tell me a little bit about what you think will happen, and what you think it's going to take to get farmers to that to that level.
2: Yeah, if we stayed on exactly the same growth rate, which the census documented a five-year growth rate of 8.4% a year if you compound it annually. So if you continued that 8.4%, by the time of the next census in just three years, in 2022, uh, because they do these every five years, there would be 23 million acres. So instead of a 5 million acre jump, that would be an 8 million acre jump. And then looking a little farther, a decade from now, in 2029, we'd have 40 million acres of cover crops. Now, we know no trend lasts forever, but I I know from our um, Sarah CTIC survey data going back to about 2008 data that we've been on a pretty steady growth rate uh, based on a couple thousand farmers a year that answered that survey. So I do expect the growth rate to continue, whether it will uh, go a little higher or go a little lower is h- hard to know for sure. But if we're going to get to 40 million acres, uh, it's going to be an expansion of acres, not only on farms where they're already using cover crops, these 153,000 farm <laughs> operations using them, but we're going to you know, need more farmers, obviously, to start using them. And I, th- I think that has been happening and is going to continue happening as farmers educate their neighbors, as NRCS staff are doing more programs, both technical and financial assistance as extension and and others. But really the key, the real key to me to get to a level like 40 million acres or higher is greater involvement from ag industry. And I'm certainly seeing signs of that happening. Uh, when I go to meetings, I'm seeing more people from companies like Bayer and Syngenta and uh, smaller ag retailers that are that are there at those meetings. Uh, we we now have, there was a big survey of ag retailers, the companies that sell fertilizers and pesticides and in some cases seed. Um, about 40% of them are now uh, selling cover crop seed, if I remember right, or providing other services related to cover crops. So So that will continue to grow as they see that as a business opportunity. And and just to put it in the context of the seed industry, 40 million acres of cover crops, if you assume the national average seed price for acre of cover crops at $25 an acre, that would be a billion dollar seed industry. And I think that in itself is gonna continue to get more interest from some of these uh, big companies as they see that, hey, this is an industry that we can get involved with that uh, fits our other business models and, you know, helps us with our farmer clients. So I would expect to see continued stronger involvement from industry, but I do feel that that will be a key to uh, getting to acreages of 40, 58 million acres or more. Great.
0: Great. We'd like to thank Rob Myers of Sayre for his wide ranging look at the data behind cover crop seeding in the 2017 Census of Agriculture and new changes in federal rules that could make cover crop adoption more attractive for those carrying crop insurance. Once again, we'd like to thank the sponsors of our digital content, Gandhi, INJ Manufacturing, Montag Manufacturing, Walnut Creek Seeds, and Unreferved Manufacturing for helping to make this podcast possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest cover crop news by registering online for our Cover Crop Strategies Weekly Update. For our entire staff here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm Julia Gerlock. Thank you for listening.